Thank you. Thank you so much for such gracious uh, introduction. It's wonderful to be back at home. This was our home from 1984 to 1993. Uh, we were received here uh, in Department of Medicine and Biochemistry. I actually did my PhD work with Izzy Edelman when he was in California. That's, how, that's what ended up back here. Uh, <clears throat> so I'm also honored to have been invited here to, uh, to give the Catherine Tuck lecture. Uh, <clears throat> some of you may have not met her. She was a, a fellow, uh, a resident and an endocrine fellow in the, in the Department of Medicine <coughs> here. Uh, she spent <clears throat> a year and a half in my laboratory at that time. Uh, doing basic research. Subsequently, she was one of the co-founders of the center. A, a wonderful person. As you can see, she's always happy, very positive, full of life. Uh, and unfortunately, she passed away several years ago. And yesterday, I had the honor of giving the 11th uh, memorial lecture <coughs> in her honor. Now, <coughs> uh, today, I'm going to be talking uh, uh, predominantly about the work we do in the lab. Uh, having to do with insulin. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I have, uh, in terms of disclosures, I have uh, two uh, outcome trials funded by Novo Nordisk. We have two grants from NIH. Uh, I'm also a consultant for Novo. And uh, there's a company named Thermalin Diabetes <clears throat> that Dr. Michael Weiss uh, heads, and uh, I have some shares in there. In terms of our work, uh, I've been working mostly with Dr. Michael Weiss. Most of the insulins I'll show you were made in his laboratory. <clears throat> his, uh, he works as a structural biologist, although he's an MD and a PhD, and trained in endocrinology, actually, at the MGH. But he's now working pretty much on extracular astrography and MR, uh, looking at structures of insulin with the idea of can we make better insulins. Dr. Jonathan Whitaker is an expert in insulin receptor, uh, Dr. Nelson Phillips is an associate professor also involved in these projects. We've had a <coughs> side uh, collaboration with Dr. Obici from University of Cincinnati. I'll show some of her work. Uh, and Natalie Strokes is a, post, uh, is a graduate student in physiology, and Alan is a uh, super technician in Dr. Kern's lab who really helps, helped me in the first two years actually doing some of the studies that I'll show you. Now. <coughs> You are perhaps familiar with the history of insulin. Some landmark things are, are plotted here. What you see is that basically after the discovery of insulin and protamine, zinc insulin, NPH was introduced in 1946. And then we went a long time before anything major happened. Recombinants were introduced in 78. And then some, some stabilization and improvement of insulin was made with Lispro and with aspart and subsequently with blue lysine. The idea here being that you can alter the insulin molecule in such a way that the hexamer, which I'll show you, falls apart faster. Therefore, these insulins would work faster, they would get absorbed faster, and they would have a shorter duration of time effect. And <clears throat> there is a controversy whether newer insulins that people make or we make are going to make a huge difference or not. But that's the topic that I'll be discussing. So what are some problems that we face with insulin? I think all of us that use insulin can recognize there are some challenges. Uh, with the short-acting insulins, although Lispro and Aspart and Glulysine are better, they're not anywhere close to being perfect. In point of fact, 
the peak is somewhere around 60 to 90 minutes after the subcutaneous injection, and then they'll last a little bit too long. Uh, so four hours later, or five hours later, there's still insulin circulating. So if a big dose is given, if you don't eat lunch or dinner at the right time, or don't take a snack, you're gonna get hypoglycemia. Then with the long-acting insulins, we have a problem that although uh, glargine and <laughs> Dedermer are better insulins than NPH in a certain way, that they are less peaked, they continue to be having big peaks. And I think this, this cartoons that the uh, pharmaceutical company sells us as a straight line with glargine, there's nothing true about it at all. When you get around 60 to 80 units of glargine, the, the glucose infusion rate that is necessary to keep the glucose constant, that hill that you have with NPH, is not discernibly different than with glargine. NPH at those high doses lasts close to 24 hours, just like glargine does, and there's a mountain. So it would be nice to have a more peakless insulin, uh, and then we have duration problems of how long they should last. Then a final chemical problem with the, with the molecule is that it is not a stable molecule. By that I mean, in a tube, if you warm up this tube of insulin and actually agitate it even gently, it will precipitate. And how long it precipitates depends on at what temperature you do this. But at 37, it will precipitate within less than a week. It will form long fibrils, and it will clog the tubes. You can't really use implantable devices because the insulin cannot last. So we have trouble with chemical stability and also physical stability of the molecule in terms of fibrillation. So those are some issues, and that's what keeps Dr. Weiss active in trying to make an insulin that's a little bit better short-acting, a little bit better long-acting, and that it doesn't precipitate or fibrillate. <coughs> this is a cartoon of a hexamer. It has two zincs uh, coordinating inside, holding it together. And <coughs> if you were to uh, look at this slide, what, what, when we use UI100, this pointer is a little bit weak, we're around here. We're, we're a little bit close to 10 to the minus 3 molar. And it's mostly in a hexameric form when we inject it. And then as it dilutes under the subcutaneous tissue and, and, and becomes uh, less concentrated, it will fall apart to make monomers. And of course, it's the monomers that bind to the receptor to work. Uh, <clears throat> so in terms of trying to figure out, well, we give a shot of insulin. Uh, initially, you know, we think of it simplistically, that you, know, you inject it and it's going to get absorbed, it's going to work. So what are the variables? The variable is is what you're injecting and how much you're injecting. But when you get to the nitty-gritty of it, actually there's many things you have to consider for it to, what, you know, what are the determinants of how long or how well an insulin works? So you have the solubility of issue at the subcutaneous site, and of course this was taken advantage of in making glargine, so when it's injected it precipitates as pH 7, so, and then it slowly absorbs. It is clear that the volume of injection is a major determinant, especially in type 2 diabetes where they're obese and the blood flow is small underneath the skin. Volume is very important. Surface volume of the precipitate is obviously going to make a difference. The dissociation rate of the hexamers makes a difference. And then you have the blood flow issue that I mentioned under the subcutaneous tissue that governs uh, how fast things get absorbed. And this, these two may be actually, the, the blood flow could be the rate limiting factor. No matter how well you make an insulin that falls apart, 
it may not get any better because if you don't have blood flow. Actually, obese people, the blood flow subcutaneous is about a third of what it should be. So that's why when we injected the peak of Lispro in an obese person, it could be two hours later. Significantly delayed. Then you have clearance of the insulin in the circulation. And the clearance could be different. Uh, it could also get degraded. There could be interfering substances in the bloodstream. And then finally, we come to the affinity of insulin for the insulin receptor, which is thought to be a major determinant. And then how well does it phosphorylate? Not all insulins are the same, it seems. That some phosphorylate more, some phosphorylate less. Some phosphorylate certain tyrosines, where others phosphorylate other tyrosines. And there's a time course of how these tyrosines are phosphorylated and what kind of signals they send. And then we have the insulin receptor internalizing. And then there's some evidence that it continues to signal. And how long it stays intact inside could be a major important parameter because it seems like most of the MAP kinase activation is through internalized receptors, not the receptors on the surface. And if that's the case, and that becomes an issue, and then what, are, what do we know about the signaling of the phosphorylated insulin receptor through at least these two major pathways? So all of these, and then probably more that I haven't listed here, are determinants of how, how well we're going to go. So here's insulin, <coughs> human insulin, the 30 amino acids in the B chain and 21 amino acids in the A chain, two disulfide bonds holding it together, one internal disulfide bond in the A chain. In position B10, uh, I've put here aspart uh, instead of this histidine. Uh, the reason I'm showing this is because we'll talk about this insulin a little bit more, the one that has aspart in the B10 position. It, it makes a unique insulin, which is, no, which is not on the market. It was actually used a little bit uh, in humans, and then it was taken off the market because it was felt to be carcinogenic. But it is, we use it actually in the lab as a strong insulin marker and try to modify the insulin to get better responses. And of course, the changes in Lispro and Aspart are right at the end over here. Uh, this, this proline lysine was inverted to make Lispro uh, as insulin, and Aspart is a, is a substitution with a D over there. Uh, <coughs> Again, the idea was that it would fall apart. It, it is true that they fall apart faster at a higher concentration. So there's a lot of monomers at around 10 to the minus 3, 10 to the minus 4. There is favoring the monomeric form. And again, you, I'm sure, know that we have more than one insulin receptor in our bodies. We have two insulin receptors from one gene. One of them has an extra exon. Uh, and the importance of this is that there's a distinct tissue distribution, it appears. Uh, the one that is responsible mostly for glucose transport in tissues that we're interested in, like fat, muscle, and liver, has the extra exon, small one. And then the one without it is actually expressed in other tissues. The bindings seem to be similar. And then I, I've put IGF-1 here because not only we have two of these, and some cells have both, then you have a multiplicity of, of, a, of a receptor that has a side of IG, IGF-1 receptor and, I, and an insulin receptor. So you have hybrid receptors. And I think the physiology is actually quite complex, and it's not really been worked out as well as it, it should be. Uh, <clears throat>
So in terms of trying to figure out how insulin is going to work, uh, the dogma or the premise has been, or, and it continues to be, the biological activity of an insulin or efficacy of insulin and insulin analogs are primarily determined by their affinity to the insulin receptor. This is so much so that if you pick up a paper from this year looking at insulin action and function, they will equate affinity, they'll have a chart labeled insulin function and what's listed is affinity for the receptor. So it's a, it's a well accepted thing, although many people believe that this may not be true. Uh, because I'll show you actually some examples where it seems to defy this rule. In other words, we have insulins that are high affinity, but they have low activity, or they have high activity. And then I have low affinity analogs we've tested that have high activity, and then various kinds of activity. And then there's this issue of, of spare receptors that is always lurking in the background, with the idea being that you only need a few of the receptors to be occupied to get a big effect. And I think Dr. Lerb actually wrote a long paper many years ago explaining this uh, phenomenon, and other people have noticed this. And whether, how much of what discrepancy we see can be explained by spare receptors. And I think that is probably true, but not true all the time. Okay, this is that, <coughs> this is that S part uh, in the uh, position B10. This insulin was discovered many years ago, and I show you this because it's an interesting backbone as far as the B10 of human insulin. You notice that it has a better affinity. The open circles are this one, and this is the regular insulin. So it, will, it has a four or five-fold higher affinity for the insulin receptor. And this was thought to be a great insulin to use, and it was actually manufactured and used in, a, in a, a two small trials. Here you see stimulation of lipogenesis. The fact that it's binding to the left, it also stimulates lipogenesis to the left. So it seems to be a stronger insulin. Lower concentrations will get the same job done. Uh, and here's a gel from many years later, looking at, and people are using this insulin as a standard. Here's SP10, and here's regular insulin. In rat one cells, you notice that the regular insulin phosphorylates and then dephosphorylates over time. The amount is constant here on the right. And if you look at the SP10 insulin, at lower concentrations, it, it, strong phosphorylation occurs, and then it lasts longer. Uh, which could be the problem this insulin has, the fact that it's strong and it lasts longer. Uh, and uh, it, was, it was found to cause carcinogenesis and it was withdrawn. In mice, mammary tumors were developing at a high rate and it was withdrawn before it got really disseminated. Now, so here is one of our insulins. Uh, this is a, I'm sorry, this is an insulin that in the, in the B24 position, there's a fluorine uh, has been substituted inside the phenol aniline that is residing there. And the backbone is that DKP, you know, the SP10 molecule. So it's on that backbone. And you notice the, the affinity of this particular insulin for IRB, and of course they've tested against IRA and IGF-1 all the time, but I'm just showing you the part that, that does glucose transport, is uh, about six or seven times less affinity uh, towards this insulin. The reason that the fluorine is that fluorinated compounds are used a lot in medicine, 
for example, Lipitor has fluorine on it. The idea is that when you have a fluorine on these molecules, they penetrate the cells and they work better and they last longer. And uh, I don't know, I mean, there's a huge uh, technology of fluorinated molecules out there that we use. Actually, a lot of our pharmaceutical agents have fluorines on them. But be that as it may, so you look at this insulin, so you would predict that it would not work as well because it is less affinity. So what you have here, okay, so we, we have tested this in a rack model. Uh, what's being plotted is a percent fall. Uh, I'll show you some of the absolute numbers in a minute. But this is around 350, 400 milligrams percent. And how we get this in the rats is that we treat them with streptozotacin a month or two before the experiment. And they develop insulopenic diabetes, basically. We don't give the maximal dose. If you give maximal, the blood sugars go to 600, then you have to keep giving insulin every other day to keep them alive and growing. So we use about 55 uh, per kilo uh, milligrams. And they, they hover around 350, 400, 450 milligrams per deciliter. And, and then we inject them subcutaneously with the insulin. And it, it's nice to start high because you can come down a lot. You can get a nice initial slope uh, for the first hour or 30 minutes. We take 10-minute readings. Uh, each number is like five, six, seven rats in any particular study. So this is Lispro. It's called KP in our lab for slang. But it is Lispro insulin that's our control. And this is the mutant. Uh, it's got a couple of other mutations in, in addition to the ASP10, but it's got a fluorine in the, in the B24 position. So what we've injected is about 0.56 units uh, per 300 gram rat. And <coughs> this is Lispro. And this is our, our friend. Now, this is deviating in two different ways. One is that it, it is working just as well it is, the nadir is much lower, and it, it seems to be more potent uh, than, than KP, which is not what we would have predicted based on this insulin. And then use a smaller dose, you notice that it is actually much, it is obviously a stronger insulin compared to KP 5 micrograms. So we don't really 100% understand why this is, you know, we haven't, but we need to understand these things before we can get to a stage where we could actually test them in a phase two kind of a, a setup. Uh, <clears throat> so other people have also addressed this problem of, of how is it that you have a low affinity insulin working the same as a high affinity insulin, uh, irrespective of the spare receptor concept. And here's a paper actually from a long time ago, two papers, now summarized here. They're, they're testing three different insulins against each other. Uh, this is tested in euglycemic clamp in pigs. Uh, at three different doses of insulin was given. So what they've chosen is human insulin as a normal control. They've chosen another insulin which is known to have low affinity. So it's a poor binding insulin, like about three to four fold. And they have our friend SP10, which is a high affinity insulin, which I've shown you already. So the question is, can we make any sense out of the data? I mean, what, is, what is this receptor binding and action? How can we reconcile it? So in terms of affinities, uh, you notice that the poor affinity person compared to 100% is about 18. And the high affinity one is about 320. So it's three times more affinity. That's about a fifth of the affinity. 
So you have a nice range of different affinities. And you notice that the relative tyrosine kinase activity is not observable different there, but it is much stronger here. And that has partly to do with the fact that the duration is long. Also, it, it, it phosphorylates more tyrosines on more insulin receptors, so you get a higher signal. So relative potency for lipid synthesis, you notice there is a gradation. The low, the, the low affinity, the high affinity compared to normal. But look over here. Relative potency to lower glucose is the same. So you sort of scratch your head, you know, how is this, how, how is this possible? Then of course what you, what you, what you'd have maybe as an explanation, I'll get to it in just a second, the glucose utilization is the same or almost the same, not significant. Duration of action after you stop it, the low affinity one seems to work longer. Look at this. The standing concentrations of insulin in the circulation is much higher in the low affinity one. And that, I think, can be interpreted by saying, and look at the half-life. It's got a long half-life. This is because uh, we believe, and a lot of people believe, that insulin half-life is determined by receptor binding. So and it, that's where it, that's how insulin is degraded and clear. It is bound to insulin, so to the receptor. So if it, it binds poorly, it may circulate over and over and over until it captures an insulin receptor and gets downgraded. So to show that this is true, uh, they have also included this information for us, that those three insulins, given at the same amount of six picomoles per kilogram per minute, notice this is the control insulin, this is the high affinity insulin, and this is the low affinity insulin. So you have different insulin concentrations circulating. Uh, yet the biological action in terms of glucose transport is the same, and you turn it off, you notice the half-lives are different. So that's a partial explanation of why there is a discrepancy between binding and action of glucose lowering. So, <clears throat> So I would like to show you some slides on this particular insulin. This is like our B24 friend, except that it has five fluorines on that same position. Now this was made, uh, and one day Mike came in and we had to test an insulin that was active. So he said, why don't you test this insulin because it should not work. I said, why shouldn't it work? He said, well, the binding is nine compared to 0.014. So it doesn't bind. Of course, it doesn't bind to IGF-1 receptor either. Like, it, instead of three, it's like 35 nanomole. He said, this is dead. Use it as, a, use it as an internal control instead of using dilium, because we use dilium a lot of times as a... So when I injected this, <coughs> here's the dilium up here in the crosses. You see that the rats are starting somewhere around 350. And here is human insulin that we use as a control. And here's this, here's, this person, here's this insulin that is supposed to be dead, and it's working fine. It's not working fantastic, but it's working <coughs> relatively well. So this huge discrepancy between affinity and action. <coughs> and then uh, I did some more experiments with this, trying to do a dose response, and it's actually shifted over about three-fold. So if you use three times more, 
and in point of fact, there are around 60 micrograms using around 60 micrograms. The, 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 the maximum rate of fall is the same, almost the same. So the half maximal here is like four micrograms in a 300 gram rat versus 16, like four times less uh, action, but a, a thousand times less affinity. So and we didn't understand how these insulins work because if it doesn't bind to the insulin receptor, how come it's working? So as we're scratching our heads, there's this paper that appeared that said that the insulin receptor, the way insulin works on the liver in terms of controlling gluconeogenesis does not involve insulin receptor. It involves a hybrid insulin receptor between one insulin receptor and one meth receptor. So it's a, it's a hybrid receptor that controls gluconeogenesis. So we said, well, if that's the, if maybe, maybe our insulin doesn't bind insulin receptor, but maybe it's binding this thing. And that's why it's working on the liver, and the fall we see in the glucose maybe has to do with control and stopping gluconeogenesis or glucose release. So as a hypothesis. So, so we decided to test this. So actually, we, we collaborated with Dr. Silvana Robici. Some of you know her. She used to be at Einstein for a number of years. Wonderful collaborator. So we sent her some of this insulin and control, double-blinded, so nobody knew what samples were which, so she could test it in the rats. But before she, we gave her blinded, we gave her known samples, so she could determine how much insulin she has to give to get the same GIR. And she worked it out, four times more insulin of this analog was necessary compared to the regular insulin in an infusion way, in a clamp study, to get the same response, which was to inhibit uh, liver production of glucose. So she designed the experiment so we could test whether this insulin controls glucose release from the liver, or hepatic glucose production. So these are the data that she has supplied us. <coughs> that this is the plasma glucose maintained under the clamp. They're very equivalent. Uh, basal, glucose uh, basal glucose utilization and production are equal. And notice that how much is injected. In, in the human insulin, our human lock was used as a control here, 18.6 uh, versus 74, close to about three and a half times more insulin was given to get this kind of a clamp data uh, condition. Uh, the glucose infusion rates are matched. Uh, so we could try to measure some of the parameters of interest. So glucose utilization is about the same, which was designed that way. Glucose production was the same. And glucose suppression was not significantly different. These ends are not large. They're five and six, or five and four. Uh, but there's no trend of being, I mean, there, this is actually an very negative response. You'd expect this to be all the way down if it was working primarily on the liver, the way she had designed this experiment. Uh, and then she looked at the uh, 2-deoxyglucose uptake towards the end of the study, looked at soleus, uh, the uptake and the content, and looked at the fat. There was no significant difference. So we didn't understand what is this doing still. You know, thought that maybe it's working on the brain but the brain, insulin in the brain works through the insulin receptor. So we, didn't, we don't understand this insulin. Now two weeks ago, she sent us some more data, and she said that when she analyzed the liver of these animals, 
the analog actually deposits more glycogen in the liver and in the muscle. Uh, potentially a very dramatic finding. If it's true, it's significant that these large small ends, but, but I don't know what the mechanism of this would be. But this could be an insulin that has a differential effect in terms of glucose deposition versus fat. So now she's analyzing the fat to see if this insulin does a differential effect on the fat. We have no idea yet how this insulin works. There's a huge discrepancy between affinity and action. So we'll leave it to some of you guys to help us <laughs> solve this. So, so I'll show you some results from other types of insulins that we've been playing around with. And this has to do with single-chain insulins. Uh, remember the B-chain and the A-chain of insulin? And then there's a C-peptide that, co that connects them. Here's some of a ribbon diagram of the molecule, how it looks. Now, <clears throat> pro-insulin, uh, although it doesn't work very well, or hardly at all, is a much more stable molecule uh, in terms of fibrillation and degradation properties. So the idea has been, can we make a single-chain insulin that, that has some of the properties of stability, yet it works? So, so here's shown a, an example with two amino acids rather than the, the length of the C-peptide. So there's a series of these that have been made in the lab. Here's one that's 53. You know, it has two amino acids in the C-peptide. It, it doesn't work. Then you have one here with six, and then we have some other ones. So there's a bunch of them, and we haven't really tested all of them. I will show you some results from this one and some variants of this 57 or 58 uh, uh, C-peptide containing. This is that C57. It has six amino acids extra in the middle. It binds relatively well to the insulin receptor. This is that one with two extra ones, and it doesn't bind very well. We have, never, we have not tested this. It's just that I know it doesn't bind, but it might work, but we haven't tested it. Every time we do an experiment, we find new things that we didn't expect. So I think we should actually test this insulin. Now, this insulin, the one with the six amino acids, has certain properties that are very favorable. Uh, compared to human insulin, this is the the uh, free energy of uh, undissociating uh, un itself. Uh, and you can see that human insulin, uh, Lispro insulin are about the same. Pro-insulin is more stable. And this single chain insulin is actually quite stable in terms of not unfolding uh, in guanidine. But look over here, fibrillation lag time. In about three and a half days, human insulin at 37 will fibrillate and come out of solution. Uh, Lispro is about the same. Pro-insulin is significantly more stable. It, it doesn't come out of solution so rapidly, but it's not effective in terms of lowering blood glucose. Our friend here, six months of shaking at 37 is still in solution. And it works. So this is, an, this is potentially an exciting insulin in the sense that it's very stable. Here's a dose response of it that I did comparing the single chain insulin with HI. There's no difference between the two. Uh, 
So we haven't pursued this insulin too much uh, other than trying to do a myelogenic assay and the insulin has very little myelogenic potential. Compared to IGF-1 and compared to SP-10, I think one of these is SP-10 here, the blue variety. This is the one that is known to cause carcinogenesis. The single chain insulin is down here, comparable to a human insulin in terms of uh, this is an assay that's often done uh, before you inject mice to see if they get tumors. Uh, then I'll show you this one. This is another insulin that has uh, seven amino acids inserted in the, uh, the C-peptide. And I'll show you this for a reason because it is a, it's a very interesting insulin. This one has a binding affinity 0.055. Uh, is comparable to 0.04, so it's pretty good for, for IRB, it's about a third as affinity, so it's not as strong, but notice that it has very poor affinity to IGF-1, which is one of the, one of the assays we do to get a glimpse of carcinogenesis. Because it is thought that some of the carcinogenic actions of insulin, if there are some, which there are some, may be related to IGF-1 receptor binding, cross-binding. So insulin binds to IGF-1 receptor around this uh, affinity, and this insulin is about 10 times less affinity. So maybe it's a very good insulin. So we tested this insulin. Uh, there's, there's too many lines here. The, this one is the diluent. Um, if I draw lines, they'll go dizzy. So I think it's maybe better this way. This is the diluent group here. Uh, this is a humolog, the red one. It comes down, this is Lispro, and it extends the time scale. Within, within a few hours, it's back up to normal. Of course, this is a relatively large dose that's given, uh, 20 micrograms, I believe it is, which is close to half a unit for uh, a 300 gram rat. This is Lantus, the blue. It comes down and it goes up, and the effect is pretty much gone within eight, 16, 18 hours, 15 hours. And that's well known that Lantus our glargine insulin in the rat doesn't last 24 hours. It lasts around this period of time, eight hours, nine hours, 10 hours. And here is our insulin. This, it works slower, so it's nowhere as rapid as Lantus. It's slower in onset, but it has a nadir, which is close to Lantus, and it lasts a long time. Well, this is also a potentially an interesting insulin, but what is what makes it more interesting is that if you agitate it at 37, or you don't agitate it, you have to make it fresh, those two insulins are on top of each other compared to uh, glargine insulin, fresh. And here's glargine insulin that's been incubated for 12 days at 37. So this insulin is stable at 37 for at least prolonged times. Uh, we, we have And here's at 45 degrees. We started a bunch of tubes uh, two months ago. This experiment we did last week. We noticed at 45 degrees, agitated for, uh, I think, 39 days, with and without agitation, fresh versus agitated at 45, <coughs> it's identical. And then uh, here's, here's glargine agitated for six days six days, and it's partially active. Glargine, 
fresh would be like here. I have it on another curve, too many lines on this line. But it comes down here like this and goes back up. So it's partially active, like 40% active. So you've lost some activity, and by 12 days you lose complete activity. So this has a potential of being an interesting insulin in the sense that it is stable, and, uh, and we would think that it's, it, it may be easy to ship it. It will have long shelf life. You don't have to refrigerate it. It could be used in the middle of Arizona. It could be used in the middle of Texas. It could be used in the middle of Africa. It could be used, it could be shipped anywhere, if this is all true. It could be inserted into pumps as a basal insulin. We need a lot more work to be able to even come to any of those suggestions. I would like to shift a little bit in the next three minutes or four minutes, talk a little bit about an assay that we are beginning to do to look at the MAP kinase pathway and NKT pathways for the reasons that I will describe here. So there's a paper from these investigators, including Ron Kahn and Ralph DeFranzo. Uh, what, they're, what they're examining is effective insulin on PI3 kinase and, and, uh, and MAP kinase mediated signal. They use utilizing clamp methodology in humans and did a muscle virus. The aim is to examine the effects of insulin in controlling obese persons and patients with type 2 diabetes. In other words, we all know that there's post-receptor problems with type 2 diabetes. They're trying to decipher it a little bit better. Identify the site of defect in post-receptor signal and insulin resistance. And they have a subset of experiments with exercise, which I will not review, but actually it's a profound result in terms of the positiveness of exercise and what it does. You can look up the paper and look at it yourself because it is a very important paper. So, of the many myriads of signaling pathways, we're focusing on two major ones in terms of insulin, the MAP kinase pathway and the PI3 kinase pathway. The MAP kinase pathway eventually leads to growth and gene expression predominantly, and this one leads mostly to metabolic effects like glucose transport. And there's some crosstalk between the two. And as I mentioned before, there is some evidence that this pathway, most of this pathway is activated from the insulin receptor that's engaged with insulin internally, not on the surface. <coughs> the evidence of this is not very strong, but it is suggestive that the, the high affinity insulins don't let go. So even when the insulin receptor internalized, they're still sticking around and signaling, and maybe that's why the MAP kindness is turned on. So here's this group of studies, uh, patients that they use. Uh, you can see their age. There are lean controls, obese non-diabetics and type 2 diabetics. Uh, the BMI is 25, 34, 30. Uh, and here's the fasting glucoses are relatively normal in the two groups and high in the. So they have a group of diabetics and they have a group of obese people that are not diabetic which we think is at least part of the pre-diabetes stage. So this is the clamp data. Uh, hepatic glucose production on the top, basal and insulin, and then glucose disposal in the bottom. And you notice that what happens is that with insulin, as well known, the glucose production falls. So there's a big suppression of glucose production in the liver. And it falls, but it doesn't fall as much in the obese, and it falls, but it doesn't fall as much in the diabetic. So there is some insulin resistance 
in the liver, uh, that is well known. This is a repeat of many other people's experiments and their own. And the glucose disposal, what is happening is that there is a reduction, of course, in type 2 diabetes that don't respond well to insulin. So you have insulin resistance, and that's why it doesn't increment as much. So this is all acceptable data. So here's the biopsy results. At the end of the clamp, they biopsied the muscle. So in insulin receptor phosphorylation is activated in the knee, and hardly any change that's discernible. But remember, this is hard one to measure because uh, it's, not, it's done after a long period of time. So could get phosphorylated and dephosphorylated, so they don't track necessarily. IRS-1 phosphorylation uh, is a little bit better signal, and you notice that it is, it is activated in the lean. It's activated a little bit in the obese, and it's not activated at all. In the PI3 kinase, it's activated quite a bit in the lean, modestly in the obese, and hardly at all in the diabetic. In contrast, you notice what happens to the MAP kinase pathway. That it is stimulated in the lean, it is stimulated in the obese, it is stimulated in the diabetic. You look at ERK pathway, ERK activity, you get the same results. So it's as if this pathway is open, that pathway is partially closed. So it raises the possibility that what happens in a diabetic is that they have elevated insulin levels they have elevated insulin levels because the glucose is high. So they're walking around for the many years with two, three times the insulin. Are the obese persons doing this? So it raises at least the possibility that this carcinogenesis that we see in obesity and type 2 diabetes, more than controlled people, may be related to the insulin and insulin receptor itself and maybe has very little or somewhat to do with IGF-1 receptor. Maybe this is the way that you're getting uh, some growth and differentiation and carcinogenesis. We know that risk of tumors is higher in obese people among patients with type 2 diabetes. And then when they give insulin, there's controversy whether high insulin levels cause. But I think that, the, but basically the person himself has elevated insulin stimulating the MAP kinase pathway. This is generalizable. So in a cartoon way, you could think of insulin stimulating the insulin receptor and also in stimulating the IGF receptor, especially if the insulin doses are high. And they will have metabolic effects and you'll have mitogenic effects. So maybe this is the relationship between insulin and mitogenesis is through this pathway or through this pathway. Both are important to measure in any insulin analog that comes along because one needs to know what is being stimulated and for how long and where. Uh, this is an interesting summary paper from a variety of people that work for Novo. Uh, they're trying to look at mitogenic potential of insulin versus their affinity to IGF-1. And this was started, uh, most this whole issue became to four when it was shown that glargine insulin is about four to five times more binding and mitogenic compared to regular insulin, although it's not out of the ballpark, so we use it all the time. But there is a signal for a glargine insulin having some effect, at least in cell culture systems. Now, if you were to plot various insulins versus proliferation, 
you notice that there is a correlation, log of this, a correlation of log of that, over a large span of receptor affinities. So the higher the affinity of insulin to IGF-1, the higher the proliferation. So this, this may be true. This could be a pathway, or it could be that it's true, true, but not really related to carcinogens. It doesn't show cause and effect, really. Here's another way of looking at this. This is the potential biological of insulin analogs and rate of dissociation from the insulin receptor. Now, it has nothing to do with IGF-1, it has to do with insulin receptor. And you notice that insulins that dissociate slower have high potential of causing mitogenesis. And insulins that dissociate fast, in other words, the low affinity insulins, tend to be less uh, tumorogenic. So these assays, I think, are going to be necessary for, for those of us that work in this insulin field, in addition to all the other ones, before one can actually think that one has a reasonable insulin to improve uh, the treatment of patients. So, so what I've tried to show you is that the relationship between affinity of insulin for its receptor and insulin action is at least complicated. It's not so straightforward. Second thing I think that I could take away from this is that there may be a room for improvement of insulins. Uh, it may be difficult to do, but maybe we can have insulins that are stable, that are not carcinogenic, that don't come out of solution, <coughs> that could be shipped around. Uh, and they may prove to be clinically useful. And insulin resistance in type 2 diabetes differentially and negatively affects the PI3 kinase pathway. I think this is a very important observation that is clinically very significant. And what I did in review is that moderate exercise stimulates insulin signaling even 24 hours later. So it's important to have our patients exercise because they seem to have profound effects that last long. And thank you so much. Yes, sir. Uh, nice talking to you. Yesterday you, you mentioned um, some of one of the analogs having an effect on intake and I don't have that one here with me. There is a there is an insulin analog that is uh, not on the market. Actually, I don't think it's even been submitted to the FDA. But there's an insulin analog that is uh, that's Nispro Nispro insulin has been added uh, two or three uh, polyethylene glycols to it. It's called Kegelated Lispro. Actually, there's a paper in Diabetes Care two three weeks ago about this insulin. This insulin has. And one of the attributes is that it has a very, very flat profile. Much, much, much better than collagen and other dead. Very, very flat. And actually lasts two days, maybe longer. Uh, this insulin was used uh, uh, in, in, a, in a relatively small group of type 2 and in a relatively small group of type 1 uh, diabetes patients. And in both groups, it caused uh, around 2 kilos of weight loss which is unheard of, right? We've never seen insulin that causes losing weight from anybody. And we don't know how this insulin works. And actually, I talked to their representative uh, suggesting that maybe Dr. Obici could look at whether this insulin crosses the blood-brain barrier preferentially, because maybe the pegylation does something to the transport. I have no idea. I think there is a black mark on this insulin because in a small percentage of patients there is a slight elevation of SGOT, SGPT, uh, and a little bit of bilirubin. 
So there, there, there may have some effects that are unwanted, and I don't know if that's the reason there's weight loss, but I don't think the weight loss correlated with his liver. And the liver abnormalities are not good to have, for sure, but, but I think it's not the reason of the weight loss. So I don't know why there's weight loss. But it is an interesting idea because if you have an insulin that penetrates the blood-brain barrier better, gives higher insulin concentrations in the brain, then you would have satiety and probably lose weight. But none of your, the ones that you showed? We have not, have not we looked, looked, looked at them at all. Oh. Not at all. Yes? It said, like Nova says, that Denimer actually is less weight gain, although here twice a day. Yes. So it's there was less one article that showed him that the rodent model that it penetrated the brain more better than yeah, it may, it may be true. I think Denimer does cause a little bit less, it doesn't cause weight loss, it causes less weight gain. Uh, and I think that's probably true. And, uh, you know, we're very interested in insulins that might work on the brain because what one of the effects is to increase alter insulin resistance and it controls through the vagus nerve, it will control gluconeogenesis. Uh, this is well worked out actually by Dr. Obich. Uh, and uh, when she was at Einstein. So, so we have been ignorant of the brain, and we haven't really been considering it the way we should. Uh, and it may be a very important parameter to look at. It actually does not involve the insulin receptor at the liver. The vagus nerve stimulation of suppression of gluconeogenesis is not through the insulin receptor. But the brain, Insulin interaction is for insulin itself. So at that point, we still have a mystery with our insulin. We have no idea how it works. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, in uh, Yeah. 